Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Frost & Sullivan's latest webinar. Today's event is titled 2019 Global Defense Outlook. My name is Anna, and I oversee Frost & Sullivan's Growth, Innovation, and Leadership Briefings. Our presenter today is Scott Clark. Scott is our Vice President here at Frost & Sullivan of our Global Defense Program. Scott has over 30 years of military and industrial experience within the aerospace and defense sector. He has experience and knowledge within military concepts, capabilities, unmanned systems, radar, electronic warfare, and homeland security aerospace applications. With that, I would now like to hand the presentation over to Scott. Thank you, uh, Anna, and uh, good afternoon, good morning, and good evening, depending where you are in the world listening. Um, today, uh, I'm going to focus on, on six major points, uh, and I understand this is a really big subject, uh, and probably 30, 40 minutes is not going to do it justice. Uh, so I'll, I will um, take any questions you may have or any um, follow-up um, questions you may have after the presentation by email or telephone, and I'm quite happy to go into more detail uh, with you. Generally, today, I'm going to cover six points. Uh, first of all, just to orientate everyone, I think everyone knows what's happening in the world today, but uh, I'll, I'll focus on the geopolitical events which are key to defence going forward into 2019 and over the next four to five years. Uh, I will then focus on the uh, regional top spenders. I'll you know, go around the uh, uh, region, six of them, and I'll, I will look at the top three spenders in, in each uh, region and highlight some of the issues and, and programs which you know, that they will be facing over the next couple of years. Uh, also, we'll focus on the defence segments. Now, in Frost and Sullivan, within the defence uh, sector, we we cover roughly 14 segments. Um, now, I clearly can't do all those segments today. I will focus on the platform segments, so the aircraft, the tanks, etc., uh, and also on some of the interesting runs around training, simulation, and services, which is uh, something which is increasing um, uh, in in a lot of countries around the world. Uh, next, I will cover the defence um, industry, the industrial base, uh, and what does it mean for exporters. So the e emphasis is on exporting rather than your own domestic markets. Uh, I will touch on digitalisation within defence briefly. Um, I know it's a subject which is starting to, um, uh, as no clients come to us uh, no, uh, over the last 12 months around this particular subject and trying to get their heads around it. Uh, and also I'll touch on technology as well, just five technology groups which are probably going to shape the next 10 years in terms of solutions uh, available in the market, in some cases probably disrupt the market. So on that note, uh, I will move quickly into um, the big picture uh, in terms of what's happening around the world today. Uh, this slide, um, it, at the heart of the slide, is, is a map looking at the, uh, the, the influences from the global powers in terms of US, Russia and China uh, and how that, that is really shifting. Um, so if we go look at the traditional world order over the last 50, 60 years, You've had the US, which has been dominant in the blue-shaded uh, countries, mainly Europe, uh, Middle East, Asia-Pacific. You've had Russia post-1990s uh, no, uh, basically falling back upon itself, and uh, and mainly its, its regional or, or near neighbours in terms of the stands and the Caucasus. 
And then you have China rising uh, and its growing influences around its immediate area uh, and also you know, relationships with Pakistan, for example. But what we see is some new uh, competitions appearing, um, uh, which basically, uh, you know, as we moved from the Cold War into a, a relative period of peace, now moving more in towards a Cold War type uh, era, uh, you see these competitions coming to rise again. And you see, for example, uh, the U.S.-Russia competitions um, in uh, South America, uh, in India, so uh, traditionally a, a Russian procure uh, of equipment, but over the last five, ten years, the U.S. have managed to gain an inroad uh, into uh, into India. Um, and also, you look at uh, it's not a competition just between the U.S. and Russia and U.S. and China. Also, there's competition between Russia and China happening in various parts of the world as well. So if you look at some of the big events which are going to shape you know, 2019, a lot of them are you know, a, a, um, basically a continuation of what's happened over the last couple of years. So uh, if I start uh, with uh, US trade and foreign policy, um, you know, since uh, President Trump's come on board, um, there's been um, uh, a destabilizing effect in terms of the existing relationships uh, the US has had with uh, various allies, and particularly Europe, for example. If I mentioned, for example, NATO and the position he's made on NATO now, I'm not saying he's right or wrong, um, but it has had an uh, impact uh, in terms of European countries and how they um, go forward in terms of defence matters. So, for example, um, Europe have uh, basically formed uh, an EU um, defence policy um, they have funding through what's called uh, EU um, PESCO, so permanent um, uh, security cooperation, uh, and you know, funded programs uh, which are for U uh, European companies uh, to work in collaboration to develop you no know, next generation of combat equipment, etc. So programs such as um, Euromail uh, or uh, EuroRPAS, for example, are all coming under this underneath this new umbrella or umbra funding umbrella uh, for for collaboration. So, um, what that means is that uh, if you're a European company, great. Um, but if you're a US company, for example, trying to move into Europe, you may find some challenges as Europe refocuses its spending to be more European orientated. Um, other issues which you know uh, which have been popular of late in terms of the uh, intermediate range nuclear forces uh, um, policy um, the JCPOA OA in terms of Iran um, the withdrawal from Syria have all left um, uh, a um, uncertainty across the uh, EU and elsewhere around the world in terms of foreign policy and where the US is going. Uh, like I said, I'm not commenting on whether it's good or bad. It's just uh, a situation which uh, is going to have some ramification. If I uh, now look at Brexit and the EU, so uh, Brexit, uh, it's coming to a head uh, in terms end of March. Uh, UK will no longer be part of the EU. Now, uh, if you ask me, is it going to be hard? Is it going to be soft? I couldn't tell you today. It's um, a situation which changed daily here in London, uh, and even for myself who's sitting here, I can't follow where it's going to end. Um, I would suspect it's going to be a hard Brexit, um, where effectively the UK will, will crash out of the EU 
uh, and there will be uncertainty around a lot of aspects of UK um, spending going forward. Um, if you look at EU, uh, you've got a growing nationalism happening in EU. Uh, if you look at the recent elections in France, um, uh, in Germany, you would have seen populist parties starting to um, gain traction in terms of winning votes uh, and uh, obviously popularity. Now, uh, that's made a lot of the um, traditional parties to stand up and think about um, future uh, policies, etc. So there's a growing nationalism in the EU which might um, have an impact in terms of future defence spending and how they procure different systems. If I look at uh, North Korea, um, that will definitely have uh, some sort of impact this year. Uh, now, at the moment, we made positive grounds last year in terms of relationships with North Korea. Uh, whether that will continue going forward uh, will be seen uh, over the next 12 months. Um, China, in terms of um, influence within the South China Sea, uh, it, it's a, a real issue um, which I know the US is, is party to, trying to um, destabilise. You've got uh, Australia uh, and Japan um, worried about the freedom of um, uh, navigation through those those waters. Uh, so it's an issue which I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. But tensions will uh, rise, not necessarily going to lead to a conflict, but could potentially lead to a situation where um, uh, but basically, not necessarily, maybe military force on a small scale may be, uh, may be seen. The Iran nuclear policy, uh, it's a huge issue. Uh, this year, I would dare say that uh, Iran will fall back to its pre-2015 uh, state. Um, it's left the um, EU somewhat in an embarrassing situation, as it was one of the key drivers behind the, uh, the policy in the first place. Syria, uh, it's, it's going to be one of those um, continuations of the situation which over the last five or six years has seen US forces, European forces, etc. engaged. With the US withdrawing from Syria, it leaves a power vacuum. Um, you'll see Russia and Iran having um, greater influence in Syria, uh, and potentially that leaves uh, other regional powers such as Turkey and Iran in somewhat of a vulnerable position. And the other one, which I probably want to talk about on this particular slide, is uh, terrorism. Um, so uh, you know, I've seen statements that uh, you know, now that uh, ISIS has been defeated in Turkey, sorry, sorry, um, in Syria, that uh, you know that it's the end. Uh, unfortunately, the nature of those type of organisations means they just move elsewhere. Um, so, you know, terrorism, uh, ISIS, um, you know, Boko Haram, are all going to be still um, uh, a destabilising influence in the um, uh, in in the, in, the, uh, in the strategic uh, circumstances over the next 10-15 uh, years. So if I just now um, move into a poll question. So what we would like to do is ask you know, three poll questions just to get your views uh, on, on certain aspects of this presentation. So the first poll question, uh, you know, 
which geographical regions do you see as delivering defence export growth over the next 10 years? And the emphasis is on the word export here rather than your own domestic uh, countries. So um, I've grouped them into uh, regions, so the Americas, North, Central and South, Asia, Europe, Middle East and Africa. Uh, so if I just give you a few minutes, uh, sorry, a few, uh, uh, basically a minute to, to think about and to respond to that particular question. Okay, we've got two answers there. Uh, no, sorry, no one's come in. Okay, uh, we'll stop the voting there. Um, so you know, Asia-Pacific region, uh, you know, India, etc., certainly uh, areas which uh, I certainly see markets uh, going forward into the future, uh, and I'm just about to talk about that on, on, on this particular slide. So. Um, if, if I go region by region and uh, start with the you know, the European region up the top there, so the three biggest spenders you see in the marketplace, and, and by the way, they're not in order or anything like that. Um, uh, so if, if I look at uh, UK, um, roughly they spend you know, 44 to 45 billion US uh, per year. Uh, like I said uh, on the previous slide, no, Brexit is really going to have an impact on um, on the UK defence spending, um, the defence, the, the, the MOD has has indicated that they're going to increase defence spending uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, however, it's particularly in, in the, probably between now and uh, early 2020s, as as Brexit you know, certainly unfolds in terms of the impact, uh, you know, the fluctuation of the pound, uh, programs such as the F35. Um, anything which has a U.S. Um, uh, supply chain is certainly going to be aff affected, uh, will have an impact in terms of uh, procurement uh, in the U.K. Also, if you look at uh, U.K. Um, current programs, such as the carriers, um, uh, the Queen Elizabeth class, uh, the F-35, um, there's uh, uh, P-8 now, uh, you've got the Apache A64, um, um, AH-64 Echo upgrade, they're all uh, programs which are running, which are chewing up the current budget. So real spend associated with future UK programs is probably not going to happen until 23, 24, 25 time period as those programs start to wane in terms of chewing up the defence budgets. Uh, that's not to say there's not opportunities, it's just to say that uh, those bigger programs are going to take priority. Also, some of those programs have the US supply chain, so they will fluctuate uh, in terms of, uh, based on the exchange rate. Um, but future programs, uh, such as the um, uh, mechanised infantry uh, vehicle, which has you know, just been recently selected, uh, though not signed with, uh, with uh, Rheimtauf or the Boxer, uh, those programs uh, are still yet to be signed and should happen sometime over the next 12, 18 months. Uh, in terms of future programs in the C4SR space, you have um, the Morpheus program, uh, which is to replace the, the, the battlefield tactical communications, and then you have decisions yet to happen around the Type 31 uh, frigate, which would happen in the early 2020s. So there's programs there which uh, are yet to um, have an impact in terms of defence spend. If I look at Germany, um, Germany recently just boosted their uh, uh, defence spending by about 4 billion uh, euros, that is, so it's around about um, uh, 6, 7 billion US to roughly a 42 um, to 43 billion uh, euro type mark. 
Now, Germany has a lot of catch-up to do. Uh, their uh, defence spending uh, in terms of procurement has, over the last 10, 15 years, has been quite low. And they have a lot of modernisation to do to you know, replacing, um, so from replacing the uh, um, tornado uh, right through to uh, land tactical communications, digitalisation of, of the um, land battle space, uh, naval upgrades, helicopters, um, all these decisions are going to happen over the next five to ten years, uh, which will you know, give lots of opportunities for both uh, US as well as European uh, suppliers. If I look at uh, France, France has been a steady, um, uh, has had a steady budget of around about uh, 45, 50 billion um, for a long time. Uh, its outlays are predominantly going to be driven by the likes of the Barracuda SSGN. Uh, it has Rafale upgrades going through to the latest F4 standard. Uh, it has the Tiger NH90 coming into service. Uh, there's new UAVs around uh, Sergeant Patroller uh, and the Euromail program. And an interesting thing is that obviously the Franco-German uh, future fighter program, uh, even though it's only a small spend now, will obviously have a big impact as we move towards the 2030s uh, and 2040s. If I look at uh, India, uh, Pakistan and Ukraine, so uh, what we call Central and South Asia, then uh, uh, India is uh, by far the most attractive market. Uh, there's lots of programs going forward in India across air, land and sea. However, it's a, it's a market which is difficult to penetrate um, and you have to be in there for the long, long term rather than for a short term gain. Also, the industrial policies in India have no round um, make or buy. Um, will dictate that you form partnerships with Indian companies to actually uh, enter the marketplace. Also, uh, another interesting trend, which I'll talk about a little bit later on, is the fact that these countries now have um, strong uh, requirements around technology transfer, uh, which means that you have to be prepared to engage, not in terms of just selling equipment, but also the technology and know-how uh, associated with those equipment. But I'll touch on that in a minute. Pakistan, you know, it's very difficult um, for uh, Western um, uh, companies because it's starting to align itself with China, uh, uh, even though there's some defence spending. China's also, uh, sorry, Pakistan's also very interested in uh, the collaborative um, program, so it can build up its own defence industries. So Chinese have been engaged with Pakistan, uh, Pakistani companies, you know, around the main battle tank, the MBT uh, 2000. Um, Tailorized for for Pakistan and obviously the JF-17, just as a couple of examples. Uh, Ukraine, obviously with its uh, no border problems with Russia uh, in the Crimea, uh, uh, the Black Sea as well as the uh, in the east, uh, is uh, basically uh, up trying to modernise its um, uh, defence force at the same time as you know, a deal with the um, uh, the Russian uh, threat. And hence, there's opportunities uh, in terms of providing equipment and, more importantly, uh, assistance in terms of uh, services to uh, train um, Ukrainian forces. If we move now to the um, uh, Asia-Pacific region, uh, Korea, Japan, Australia. Uh, uh, Korea and Japan are by far you know, the largest uh, defence spenders. Uh, each, both have 
uh, increase the defence spending and plan to increase the, increase the defence spending over the next uh, five years in terms of their five-year plans, um, mainly in the air uh, um, and uh, maritime environments, uh, but obviously um, South Korea, because of its threat from the northern neighbour, uh, also has a strong focus on, on the land C4SI. Australia uh, has gone through a huge modernisation program over the last 10 years, and that's going to continue um, into the uh, into the foreseeable future. But some of the big ticket items, such as the air warfare destroyer, you have C5000 now, which is the um, uh, new frigates, uh, the Type 26 based frigates. Uh, you have the C1000 submarine program. You've had decisions around uh, land uh, 400, which is the, um, uh, the infantry fighting vehicle. And going forward into the future, you've got decisions around F-35, additional buy, another 28, which is going to happen very shortly uh, in, in the next couple of years. So there's some real big ticket items which are happening um, in Australia uh, at the moment. Um, and by the way, a lot, even though those decisions have made, there's a lot of opportunity in terms of the supply chains with those uh, bigger programs. If we look at the Middle East, um, you know, Saudi Arabia has been the biggest buyer for uh, a long time, particularly in terms of US as well as European sourced equipment. Uh, that is probably going to continue, um, though at a lesser extent than what has been done over in, uh, in the past. Uh, Israel uh, has the F-35 and a number of other upgrade programs going forward. Uh, obviously, the US-Israeli relationship is, is strong uh, and the, the funding of, of um, programs uh, by the US uh, in terms of acquiring US equipment. Uh, Turkey is an interesting uh, country in that it wants to develop its own defence industry or is developing its own defence industry uh, to be indigenous and also to become a regional power in terms of exports as well. Uh, it is modernising across the board in terms of air, land and sea. But at the same time, it's trying to deal with, um, one, uh, an economy which is up and down, as well as the threat uh, or active operations it currently has in northern Syria. So uh, even though it has aspirations, uh, sometimes I, well, I think it's uh, going to struggle in terms of funding. If I talk about uh, Africa, then the three biggest um, uh, spenders are Egypt, Algeria, and Morocco. Um, uh, what's interesting about Africa is the diversification which is happening in terms of the source of um, equipment. Um, so uh, in the past, you would have had Egypt and Morocco, or particularly, sorry, Algeria, um, for example, uh, sourced from Russia. They're now opening themselves up to um, supplies from, from Europe. Um, Egypt's always been a mix of Russian uh, and uh, US equipment, but also interesting enough, it's now uh, um, acquiring systems from China. And Morocco is also now starting to diversify and look at alternative solutions to Western uh, sourced um, equipment. Um, if I just think about the programs, um, uh, Egypt uh, is, is really going through um, I don't think Egypt has the capacity at the moment to, to really take on any more in terms of procurement. You've got Rafal, you've got um, MiG-29 procurement on the air side, you've got AH-64s being delivered. You're on the naval side, you've got um, uh, the corvettes as well as frigates being um, procured. So they've got a lot of big ticket items on a relatively small um, defence budget. Algeria has predominantly... Um, been uh, modernised its air and naval. It's now starting to modernise its land forces. 
um, and uh, like I said, is looking at diversifying its um, uh, source of equipment, though still heavily aligned to Russia. Uh, and Morocco, going forward into the future, is looking at um, potentially a new fighter uh, to replace the F-16 F-5s in the early 2020 time period, probably around 25. Um, also is looking at uh, upgrading its uh, anti-submarine warfare capability uh, in terms of submarine as well as uh, corvettes or a frigate class um, ship because it sees its main threat as being Algeria. If I go to uh, South America, the South American market is, is relatively flat and I think it's still going to remain relatively flat for another um, five years. Uh, you know, the biggest economy is Brazil. Its um, procurement programs have been put on hold due to uh, the state of the economy. And, uh, you know, they will slowly, as the economy slowly uh, rebuilds, uh, so will the defence programs be reinitiated, particularly around the naval forces in terms of frigates, corvettes, uh, OPVs and submarines. Uh, if I look at North America, you know, obviously the US is the biggest uh, no defence market in the world uh, and uh, there's a number of programs uh, which uh, are you know, well published, um, so I won't go into the US into any detail. In terms of Canada, um, they made decisions around the, uh, the Canadian surface combatant Type 26 class. So, you know, a big theme is the Type 26 multi-mission uh, frigate is certainly a, a growing trend in Western navies, um, and has done well. And the Bear Systems has done well over the last uh, 12 months in terms of screwing those two big programs. Uh, Canada has to make some big decisions over the next uh, 10 years around its equipment. Uh, you've got the Canadian uh, fighter program replacing the F-18s. Um, you have uh, the P-3, which has gone through a midlife upgrade, but will still probably have to replace towards the, you know, the 2030 time period. You've got decisions around the Griffin, the, um, the Bell uh, um, 214s. Um, so you've got decisions around some of the, the land uh, force elements as well. Uh, so uh, Canada um, has to replace a lot of these equipment, but the budgets at the moment aren't going to sustain uh, that type of level of well, that level of procurement. And Mexico uh, is is just trundling along. So in terms of uh, you know, the markets, Asia Pacific certainly there's a huge market in Asia Pacific if you incorporate India, as well as the you know South Korea, Japan, uh, and Australia. But also you've got Singapore making decisions around uh, future fighter, which looks like being F-35, uh, with a decision sometime this year. Um, and some of the other Malaysian, um, sorry, some of the other Asian economies like Malaysia, Thailand, etc., have some naval and air platforms which need to be replaced uh, over the next 10-year period. Like I said at the beginning, we, we cover 14 segments uh, within the uh, uh, within the defence sector. And just looking at time, I will uh, just cover uh, the top five platforms very quickly, talking about the trends we see today, and. Uh, then also probably touch on training simulation and uh, defence services. Like I said, if you have questions regarding the other um, uh, segments on, on the slide, please just send me an email. So if I look at combat and mission aircraft, uh, no, the, the, the um, fighter uh, competitions around the world uh, are, are numerous, uh, with a lot of nations you know, looking at the decision of going from a fourth generation to a fifth generation uh, platform over the next 10 years. 
you know, decisions around Finland, um, uh, Switzerland, uh, for example, over, which uh, you know, have gone through an RFI or RFQ um, type process, and some sort of decision is going to be uh, either uh, this year or over the next uh, two years, uh, which will start to impact the marketplace. The um, the issues uh, I, I think a lot of countries are, are grip and they're trying to grapple with is the issue of going from a fourth generation to a fifth generation um, fighter, and obviously the fifth generation fighter on the market today is the F-35, um, and for European uh, operators. Uh, which we've seen, such as Belgium, you know, UK, uh, Netherlands, Norway, which you know have operated F-16, not the UK, but the other ones. Uh, you know, the decision to go to F-35 was probably a natural one. Some of the other competitions around the world, uh, it, it's probably a little bit more difficult to to judge. And so there's still a role for a fourth generation platform, such as the you know, the Eurofighter, the Rafale, the, the Saab, um, uh, Gripen, um, the new generation the EF just to, to name a couple. So uh, those type of programs, uh, I, I think, will still give opportunities for, for the existing manufacturers. If you look at uh, new developments in, in the fighter or combat aircraft uh, market, uh, you've got the, the Turkish TFX program, uh, which has been going on for a while, involving BA systems and TII, TII Turkish Aerospace Industries. Um, you have the KFX program, um, uh, both of those programs are probably aiming for about a mid-20 before you see um, those type of platforms, one, uh, into the domestic markets, but then you know, be, 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 a, be a threat uh, or competition um, in the future for that fifth-generation type uh, uh, competition. Programs such as the Franco-German Future Combat Air System, uh, like I said, involves France and Germany uh, to replace the Rafale and the Typhoon by in the 2040 time period. You've just seen recently Spain join, and I wouldn't be surprised if Italy also joins that particular um, uh, development uh, going forward. The United Kingdom has um, uh, indicated last year that they're going to invest in the Tempest. Um, uh, and the seeking international competitors, uh, sorry, um, partners for that particular program. Uh, and the, the two likely candidates which stand out are, the, are Japan and India, but there could be others as well. I have, uh, I, I can't see how um, Tempest is going to go forward, um, given the current budget situation and also Brexit. It will probably go on in terms of you know, early development studies but full-blown um, developmental activities is probably some, some years off. Um, and then also you've got competition coming in from China you know, with the likes of the J20, J31, uh, which will, will again, um, in some of those countries around South um, America, um, some countries around Asia, as well as uh, Africa, they could be uh, contending uh, uh, combat aircraft. On the mission aircraft side of the house, um, you know, what we see is effectively adoption of um, commercial platforms, uh, general aviation platforms, business aircraft, which have been adapted. Um, they, op they give you lower operating costs and of course the size, weight and power of mission systems and sensors is coming down, uh, enables you to, to put them onto those smaller platform types. And you can see that across uh, airborne uh, early warning, uh, air-to-ground surveillance, SIGINT, uh, and uh, maritime patrol. The latter, the MPA, uh, you know, some 500 aircraft uh, which need to be replaced over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, 
tens, uh, nearly, um, sorry, 500 aircraft, and about 50% of those will be needed to be replaced or upgraded over the next 10, 15 years. And the same on the maritime surveillance aircraft side, so the smaller platforms uh, for coastal surveillance, um, uh, EEZ type operations, there's roughly 400 which will need to be replaced. So uh, that, that maritime surveillance, maritime patrol market is certainly an area where there's lots of opportunities going forward into the future. Just quickly touching on naval systems, um, so uh, what we are seeing is the uh, trends around multi-mission warships, uh, greater autonomy, so the adoption of uh, USVs, uh, so unmanned surface uh, um, vessels, uh, and AUVs, autonomous underwater uh, vehicles, vessels, uh, are starting to become um, an extension to combat systems and to ship operations. And typical concepts around mine warfare, anti-submarine warfare, going forward into the future will use these type of systems. Also, um, the adoption of uh, UAS, so unmanned air systems, um, particularly uh, VTOL-based solutions, uh, whether they be small, you know, the Shebel S100 type or the Fire Scout type solutions, uh, will also start to be um, mandatory um, additions to combat systems on board ships of various classes. Uh, if you look at submarines, um, there's certainly uh, a growth in submarines, the C-1000 project, for example, uh, where effectively Australia is doubling its submarine force from 6 to 12. Um, now, is an indication that uh, they see uh, submarines as still a viable um, combat asset going forward into the future, particularly in uh, Asia-Pacific, where you've got shallow waters uh, operations and diesel um, platforms are the trend. If you look at land combat vehicles, then uh, you know the but basically the, the land systems up until probably the last 10, 15 years have been you know, long neglected. Uh, poor cousins to the air and, and naval side of the house. Uh, we we do see that there's a renewal of land programs you now driven by things like uh, obsolescence and the fact that you know, a lot of these platforms are now 40, 50 years old. Um, you have uh, new expeditionary uh, missions uh, which uh, require new new types of vehicles. Uh, you have threats from improvised explosive devices, uh, penetrating munitions requiring new designs, uh, and not to uh, and not least is the adoption of unmanned um, ground um, vehicles as, as an extension to um, some of these uh, more traditional uh, uh, vehicle types. So there's a lot of technology and a lot of um, opportunities as we go through these renewal programs around the world. It also is generating uh, new competition as we see you now 40, 50, if not even 60 um, different uh, vehicles uh, in any one particular class uh, and you know, both being designed for domestic use as well as in the, in the export market. Um, if you look at trends around main battle tank, uh, you know most the main battle tanks are looking at a 2035 time period when they're going to leave um, service or need to be replaced. That's you know, the likes of the Leopards, the Challengers, the Abrams, um, which will require new designs, which the design work will probably start around about now to hit that 2035 time period. Uh, if I move on to unmanned systems, uh, basically the trend is towards unmanned. Um, UAS, uh, you'll see uh, a couple of trends. First of all, you see new um, mail-type programs, like I said, in Europe, around the Euro-RPAS. Uh, you'll see a greater um, 
number of smaller swarm type concepts starting to appear and obviously that manned unmanned teaming between um, uh, aircraft, helicopters and uh, unmanned adjuncts to their capabilities. On the uh, ground side uh, at the moment there's around about 100 uh, UGV type designs and each each year that is growing. Uh, on the USV there's about 50 different designs at the moment uh, and really a lot of navies are in the concept demonstration phase uh, and they will eventually lead to procurement programs uh, in the 2025 time period. And finally uh, you know the AUVs uh, there's about 60 bespoke solutions today uh, you know focusing on a single mission as the naval requirements start to consolidate, the concepts start to formulate, uh, they will start to um, uh, basically, the, the, the number of competitors in the marketplace will start to shrink and new designs, uh, which will be more robust, uh, will start to appear. One of the markets which I think is going to grow uh, considerably is air defence systems. Uh, there's a lot of new threats uh, in terms of ballistic cruise missile, but more importantly, as you, have, you, know, you would have seen over the last uh, six months, uh, news reports around Russia and China developing hypersonic uh, missiles uh, in terms of air-to-ground. What that means is that a lot of air defence systems are now either redundant or certainly uh, less effective than, than what they were in the past. So therefore, the, the, a lot of the um, air defence systems will have to be integrated in terms of sensor, sensor networks, uh, you know, C4 in terms of the processing, as well as the response elements in terms of missile systems. Another um, key trend in the air defence system is the uh, you know, low radar cross-section uh, combat aircraft, uh, as well as the uh, threats from uh, unmanned air systems, uh, in the battle space, uh, you know, over the last uh, you know, 15 years, where you know, Western forces have used UAS uh, in relatively benign uh, space, you know, in the future you'll see future state-on-state um, -state or even um, you know, terrorist groups, etc., suddenly use UAS in a threatening environment. One of the key trends across all the uh, three platform segments is this cooperation. So what we see from an industry perspective is greater cooperation in terms of uh, both research and development, um, development as well as procurement, uh, mainly because the cost associated with developing these new generation of systems is too prohibitive for a single country to, to go alone. So um, cooperation, uh, collaboration, uh, whatever term you want to use is certainly uh, the way in terms of future trends on an industrial as well as a uh, government government basis. Of course, at time, I will move forward. Uh, like I said, if you have questions on the other segments, please just send me an email and I'm quite happy to respond. Um, just to quickly touch on the global defence industrial and technology base. So what do we see happening um, uh, going forward into the future? So first of all, there's growing competition uh, and the competition is coming from the likes of China um, who, who are now starting to penetrate, uh, to be honest, a lot of Russian markets uh, in, in places like Africa, etc., with low-cost uh, solutions. But also, those, the, the technology and the capabilities of Chinese industries certainly increased uh, to be uh, comparative in terms of performance to some of the Western technologies. Um, we also see uh, countries like Turkey, uh, South Korea, Japan, um, uh, all adopting uh, export uh, strategies, all adopting export strategies, uh, 
um, to penetrate initially their regional markets, but more, uh, more or increasingly uh, uh, global markets. And also some countries like Australia, you would have uh, seen uh, recently just set up a uh, defence export office to actually facilitate uh, greater exports you know, fr from from that country. So there's going to be increased competition from uh, these new uh, new players in the marketplace. Also, the industrial policies are now uh, changing. So I indicated earlier, for example, India with its um, uh, DPP 2016 policy, uh, team make uh, sorry the sorry team make buy um, sorry I meant to say uh, make buy India. Uh, um, uh, policy, which is forcing uh, collaboration in terms of partnerships, uh, technology transfer, which is really building up the capability of domestic industries to support initially their own uh, capabilities, but also in the future to export. So greater competition is certainly one thing we're seeing as uh, going to impact the global defence industrial technology base over the next uh, five years. The collaboration I've already mentioned, so the next generation combat system because of cost. Mergers and acquisitions. Uh, so we've seen um, some real big mergers happening in the US. Uh, in Europe, uh, in the naval side, you've seen Fincantieri and STX of France, uh, and potentially in the future, Naval Group and Fincantieri of Italy uh, merging. You've seen potentially uh, Rheinmetall uh, acquiring uh, KMW or plan to uh, acquire uh, KMW, uh, which is obviously in a joint venture with uh, Nexter of France uh, in terms of KNDS. Uh, where we see future um, consolidation happening uh, or mergers and acquisition happening is in Europe, uh, where you see a lot of duplication of capability. Uh, and these European programs, uh, which I mentioned very early on in the uh, um, presentation, are going to facilitate those type of mergers going, going forward. Uh, what we also see is, uh, in, particularly in the US, for example, is the um, adoption of uh, or, or the big OEMs, etc., acquiring service-oriented businesses or IT businesses. Uh, and for example, uh, you know, General Dynamics uh, with uh, the acquisition of CSRA uh, last year is just an example of that. And finally, um, uh, is that um, we, we see Western nations. Um, particularly the US, UK, Australia, Canada, initially France, Germany, um, uh, and some of the European countries in the second wave, outsourcing a lot more and more of their non-combat related activities, which will lead to new uh, competitors entering the marketplace, which are non-traditional defence players, uh, and particularly in the IT sector, for example. So uh, what we see is, uh, as a summary, is just greater competition uh, across the global um, defence market. Okay, um, just going into poll question number two. Um, so what do you believe is the greatest challenge in winning defence export opportunities? Uh, and I've put five particular um, options there. Uh, one is the need for a government-government framework. So what, do, what this means is, I'm not talking about FMS, what I'm talking about is some sort of um, government framework which facilitates not just the, um, uh, the, the sale of equipment, but also the research and development, the tech transfer, um, uh, transfer of knowledge, uh, et cetera, as well as the sale of equipment, and potentially in collaboration uh, of, the, of the development and potential sale of that equipment as a joint um, product. So government-to-government -government frameworks, 
The other one is increasing price pressures from new arrivals, so I t touched on those just briefly. Tech transfer, uh, I, uh, which is always a touchy subject, I know, uh, in terms of transferring your knowledge and know-how and skill capability. Uh, market intelligence, or the last one is all of above. Okay, about 15 seconds and then we'll move on. Okay, yeah, tech transfer, I'm not surprised. Um, just some recent studies we've done with, with some clients. Uh, no, government, government framework certainly came up quite often uh, as an issue. Uh, and also the uh, increasing competition they see from, from new players. But tech transfer is, is certainly one which you know, I've experienced in the past. Uh, just moving on now to um, the next slide. So just briefly touching on the technology groups. Uh, artificial intelligence, computational uh, technologies. Uh, so this is things like big data, uh, obviously artificial intelligence associated with autonomy. Um, uh, swarm technologies, uh, etc., uh, are certainly going to have an impact. They're already having an impact in the marketplace and will continue to do so. If I look at uh, battle space networks and cyber-related technologies, so this is the adoption of things like uh, MANA, which I know is, is a, an existing technology, but the complexity of MANA networks will increase uh, in terms of the number of nodes. Uh, you have a potential 5G technology, which will obviously need to be militarized um, uh, to be uh, introduced over the next, um, you know, particularly from you know, the 2020s onwards. Uh, and then you obviously got cyber-related technologies around you know, um, blockchain, uh, which, uh, you know, from a security perspective, network security perspective, all these are around about uh, one, connectivity, two, increasing um, the throughput in terms of um, uh, having the bandwidth to support the higher data rates, et cetera, required in terms of the future uh, weapon systems, et cetera, as well as providing the, the cybersecurity uh, in terms of new threats. So uh, battle space networks and, and cyber-related technologies uh, are already you know, here today but are going to evolve uh, in terms of more complexity. The future weapon systems, uh, so we touched a little bit on uh, hypersonics. So uh, Russia uh, has already tested uh, last year um, the missile. Uh, China is, 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 has one which is in a prototype and demonstration phase. And the US is probably still three to five years away before it uh, will have a prototype slash a uh, operational system. So uh, hypersonic missiles will fundamentally change, like I said, uh, a lot of uh, concepts and thinking around air defense uh, and uh, you know, future naval combatants, uh, etc. Other weapon systems such as directed energy weapons, rail guns, will continue to evolve through the research and development uh, side and probably still a five to ten years away before um, that they'll become mature type um, capabilities, uh, albeit in probably limited fashion. Other two technologies which are having an impact or will have an impact is around future energy and power systems. Uh, so um, small modular, modular reactor technology on the civil side uh, potentially being used in the military sense, um, providing uh, obviously on um, surface and submarine combatants, um, as well as in the future in terms of having deployable uh, power systems to support um, in theater operations, et cetera. Uh, fuel cells, in terms of being you no know, technologies, is progressing quickly on the basis of unmanned systems. Uh, and there's still uh, no uh, technology being involved around solar panels, et cetera, uh, to give 
um, an alternative to having diesel-based uh, solutions, uh, generators, etc., uh, in, in the battle space. And the last one, which we've all been watching for a while, is the adoption of uh, augmented reality, uh, virtual reality type technologies, uh, and the applications across all the fence se uh, segments, uh, whether they be in the cockpit, um, uh, you know, in terms of um, presenting uh, information uh, to the soldier through to training simulation. So uh, we. We follow up to about eight groups of technologies, uh, and you know, all of them are going to have some sort of impact as we go forward into the future in terms of disrupting the marketplace. I, for example, the future weapon systems uh, technologies around hypersonic uh, missiles, uh, or they will um, provide enhanced capabilities around in terms of artificial intelligence and um, the battle space networks. Okay, poll question number three. Uh, sorry, I'm rushing this a little bit because we're running out of time. Uh, in terms of the last poll question, is really looking at those five technology groups. Uh, which do you see as being the having the greatest impact over the next 10 years? So that's from computational artificial intelligence through to uh, HMI technologies, as I just went through. Okay, 15 seconds, and then I'll uh, move on. Okay. Just touching on digitalization, uh, it's it's one of those subjects which I think has been you know, the terminology which has been misused. Um, you know, defence has always uh, over the last 20, 30 years has been slowly digitalising the battle space in terms of equipment, connectivity, uh, in terms of uh, networking, uh, in terms of adoption of computing technology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, what we're talking about here in terms of digitalization is is really the defence enterprise. So it's not just the um, battle space, uh, no battlefield of things. Um, it's really talking about the uh, the back office related stuff, the procurement process, but more importantly, the interaction between defence and defence industry going forward into the future. Now, uh, digitalization in defence is always going to have challenges. Uh, you know, as you see in, in the commercial sectors, they're adopting um, digital technology um, business models, etc., which is fundamentally changing the nature of their business, providing cost savings, uh, etc. In defence, is a little bit more difficult, uh, and the adoption is is a lot slower than in some of these other sectors, mainly because of um, uh, institutional barriers which we put in place in terms of distributing data uh, between uh, and the connectivity between uh, defence uh, agencies, uh, etc. All for very good reasons, uh, but that's that's also hampering the adoption of of digi digital technologies and uh, the business models associated with it. In terms of um, the competitive landscape, what we are seeing, though, in, in terms of these digitalisation strategies within defence, is the uh, the classic uh, commercial operators, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, the Microsofts, uh, all the big IT players, um, which are coming to uh, defence with different business models and approaches and attitudes towards how to uh, implement uh, digital solutions. Uh, and you can see that in some of the um, partnerships uh, between uh, classic OEMs and 
the, these, these new players like General Dynamics and Google, uh, Microsoft in 2017, uh, 2018 uh, respectively, um, Laidos uh, with um, AWS in 2018, uh, and then with Microsoft, you got Telus and Microsoft in 2018, forming these strategic partnerships and alliances to take um, or to implement their digital platforms and digital solutions in, in the defence um, environment. Also, um, new business models. Um, now, I see a lot of the digitalisation progressing along with the services market. Uh, so, as defence forces culturally uh, um, be, become more open to uh, transferring uh, in-house activities to uh, contractors, uh, building up that defence services um, uh, business then these digital um, models, uh, business models, etc., will have more of a play. And uh, providing information as a service, just an example, uh, could be a, a particular uh, business which would you know, support some of the intelligence functions, etc. And the US is by far more advanced in its thinking than, than some of the other uh, Western as well as other forces around the world. And the question I, I leave you with is around data modernisation. So what you see uh, in the commercial sector is, is data, data has become a commodity, and how can that be applied in the defence um, environment? Okay, um, key takeaways. So I, I covered a lot of ground at a high level um, and, and not in a lot of detail. Like I said, please contact me afterwards um, uh, if you want some some, some more information, but uh, I hope that you go away with understanding that the geographical instability, um, the conflict between, or not conflict, the, the power struggles between US, China and uh, Russia will have an impact on defence spending around the world, and generally you see uh, across most of the regions a increase in defence spending. Um, and also the modernisation, so a lot of the defence forces have uh, suffered in terms of the last, no, particularly the last 10, 15 years, uh, as the economies um, declined uh, or um, have suffered, so has defence spending. So now they're going for a regeneration, a remodernisation of a lot of the defence capabilities. Uh, in terms of key key regions, Europe, Asia Pacific, India, and Middle East, are my recommendations to you. Um, Digitalisation of defence will open up new concepts, new spending priorities. Uh, it will also open up new business models and new opportunities for companies like yourselves to uh, to engage and um, grow your business. And basically, the traditional defence exports will come under increasing pressure from these emerging players in the marketplace, and also these these non-traditional defence companies, like I mentioned before. On that note, uh, I know we're running pretty short of time. Uh, are there any questions? Yes, Scott, we can answer one question here. We have a, a few minutes here. Uh, the one question here that we have time for, do you think that we'll see more military investments in maritime robotics, unmanned underwater vehicles, autonomous underwater vehicles, etc.? And what are the biggest investments being made today? Okay, the answer is yes, uh, in a big way. Um, uh, so the, the, the naval um, navies have been slow to come to the party in terms of uh, autonomous systems. Uh, particularly, you know, we've probably seen over the last five years a, a real focus on uh, adoption of UAS. 
um, in um, in the naval environment, so the VTOL UAS. But we also uh, now see a, a lot more research and development um, going into concepts around using USVs and AUVs uh, to support things like um, uh, mine warfare, which is, is mine counter measures. Uh, and uh, anti-submarine warfare. I see it as a huge market going forward. The problem with uh, today is that you know, the navies are still very much in a conceptual um, stage, uh, so the real money is not um, not there yet. But I, definitely over the next 10 years, I, I see money um, both in terms of research and development as well as procurement and integration of those systems on uh, through uh, ship modernization programs, but also as part of these new builds such as the uh, uh, Type 26, Type 31, um, the Canadian uh, CSC, the C5000 uh, programs. So uh, I, I definitely I, I see it as, as a, a real opportunity for companies in, in that particular space. Thank you, Scott. Now, this concludes today's session. Again, as Scott mentioned, please contact us with any questions. I have posted the contact details on your screen at this time. We want to thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.